too. Hopefully we can satisfy all of our interest in the question that's posed on the on the chart tonight and and uh, uh, what was especially posed for, for us to think about a little bit, study from God's Word, and that is, is the Lord's Supper to be eaten as a table meal? And uh, we will arrive at that point, but uh, there are some things that are that are, um, uh, I think, germane to the, the subject that are central to really understanding some of this uh, topic, maybe where it comes from and where it's headed a little bit and, and uh, what we need to know. Uh, it's, uh, it's important that we understand the Lord's Supper. I, I, I think most of us would say, well, we've got a pretty good handle on that, a good grasp of what it is. And at the same time, just as we were studying the first principle lesson this morning, uh, there's always things for us to think about, ponder, understand uh, better, grow in, and, and hopefully that can be the case as we study about uh, the Lord's Supper and particularly this idea uh, that some have about it uh, being a part of a, of a table meal. So I'd like to start our study. If you would, please get a Bible. And by the way, I appreciate and welcome our visitors. I'm glad that you're among us again. And we appreciate that. And I invite you to join us in this study in Jude verse 12. If you'll turn there with me, please. Immediately, we want to to, um, think a little bit about uh, what Jude talks about in this passage. It says, These are spots in your love feasts, which uh, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, and he goes on in his description. He's describing uh, the uh, those who have fallen away, those who are teaching error, those who uh, undoubtedly the certain men who crept in unnoticed. Verse four, because now you see he talks about these people as being spots or hidden reefs in your love feasts. Really, Jude is warning against false teachers in this entire. Uh, passage uh, and and the idea of spots or is reefs or or hidden reefs and you know that's the nature of a reef isn't it it it's an unseen danger uh, the reefs when they come out of the water then you know they're there you know they're present you can steer away from them and avoid damage uh, and and uh, destruction even but he says these people are spots that are hidden reefs in your love feast. They are they're unnoticed. They're, they're, they're unseen dangers. He says they, and I might mention, when you think about a reef, it's kind of a deceptive beauty. There's a lot of beauty to the reefs. The great coral reef, uh, obviously, and other reefs, because you know they, 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 they grow and a lot of different things, and they're very beautiful. Now, and yet, false teachers have a deceptive beauty. They appear righteous. Jesus warned about them. He said, outwardly they appear like sheep, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Make no mistake that false teachers are deceptive teachers that appear righteous. It appears good what they have to say very often. And, and it, it requires that we have the discerning capability of the truth, Philippians 1, 9, and 10, so that we can distinguish truth from error, so that we can contend earnestly for the faith, as Jude said in verse 3. All of this fits together from that thesis of verse 3 
that he's writing to them to contend earnestly for the faith because there's some among you hidden that may appear beautiful to you, but they're destructive, deceptive, and deadly. The scribes and Pharisees, Jesus pronounced woe upon, said outwardly you appear righteous before men, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. You're whitewashed sepulchers. Or again in 2 Peter 2, and verse 3, and, and 2 Peter 2 is, is in uh, many ways somewhat parallel to Jude. And he also refers in 2 Peter 3 and verse 12 to them being spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. So, so uh, a, a similar idea there. 2 Peter 2 and verse 3 says, By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. False teachers... Ex- exploit you with deceptive words. And we must see that deception uh, and, and, and not be lured by, uh, by its assumed or perceived beauty at times to us. It's perceived uh, goodness on the surface. Also, the idea of, of spots or hidden reefs these, these false teachers are self-serving. You go back to Jude 12 and you see what they're doing. They're serving only themselves. They feast with you without fear, without apprehension. They, they're bold to be among you, but he says they're only serving themselves. These are the enemies of the cross whose God is their belly. Philippians 3, 18 and 19 that Paul warned about such on that occasion. So, Jude 12, and we read the verse because it uses the phrase love feasts. And we're going to get to that point, but I want you to see that whatever the love feasts are in that verse, the main warning is against the false teachers that were among them in a deceptive, unnoticed way, serving themselves and bringing destruction to their faith. That they needed to be exposed, rooted out, seen for what they are, and understand that they are under God's judgment and uh, not to be lured by them into the deceptions of error. Now, all that we say because you see, there are such false teachers that have deceptive, sometimes beautiful doctrines about the Lord's Supper that seem good, that seem right, that seem uh, like they're, they're really an advantage, but they're hidden reefs. Among us, they are a deceptive beauty serving not the Lord, but their own will in the matter of the Lord's Supper. Now, we make that, if we can't make that application to error, then we can't use Jude at all. I mean, Jude's warning us about the reality of false teachers, and that's what they are. And you see, there's some that tell us that the Lord's Supper should be a table meal, or it should be table fellowship. Well, uh, you know, that's, that's a coined phrase, um, and, and it's coined by men. Colossians 2.23 says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. They, they, they're self-made. Uh, this idea, as we're going to see in our study tonight, it doesn't come from Scripture. What comes from Scripture is that the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal. It is a memorial and a communion with the Lord, with, with His body and His blood. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17 says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? 
The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we are all for we all partake of that one bread. So, so we uh, uh, we share with the Lord. Matthew twenty six twenty nine. In the Lord's Supper, we have communion with Him. Jesus said uh, in verse twenty nine in Matthew twenty six. Um, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus says, I drink it, I will drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. We're going to share with him the benefit of the new covenant that his blood dedicated, Matthew 26, 28, and by which our sins are redeemed, are removed, are washed away. So it's a memorial of His death on the cross. And it's a communion, a fellowship in those blessings with Him. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 talked about the table of the Lord. Now he talked about fellowship, communion with the body and blood of Jesus, and he talks about the table of the Lord in that same text. You drop down to 1 Corinthians 10 and 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. So there's the cup of the Lord, the table of the Lord. So we don't deny there's a table that we gather at, if you please, metaphorically. No, it's, it's a figurative language to speak of an occasion where we commune with the Lord. But that's a far cry. That's a far cry from proving the false teaching that some have developed that says the Lord's Supper is to be eaten in conjunction with a common meal. A fellowship meal that would have table fellowship. And we'll, we'll expand that thought and talk about that a little bit. But, but see, acknowledging that when we eat the supper, it's the table of the Lord. We partake of that. No doubt, 1 Corinthians 10.21. That's a far cry from supporting the conclusion that we need to have a common meal that morphs some way into the occasion of eating the Lord's Supper at the same time. Some brethren are doing that. The house church movement, particularly, have developed this idea, this concept. And that's answered... In 1 Corinthians 11, 17-34, we'll come back to that text. I mean, it's, the, answer, the, the, the error is well answered there. Uh, and and it's, it's, it is intriguing and paradoxical. It's a paradox that those who want to support this table fellowship concept, this fellowship meal and the Lord's Supper concept, go directly to that ver- verse to try to sustain it. And yet it's the very verse that denies it. It's the very verse that destroys it. Amen. And yet that's the very one they go to. Now, talk about deception. Talk about beautifying an error and drawing people to it when it is opposed to Scripture. This fits the bill. But let's talk about love feasts for a minute. Let's talk about what are those love feasts in Jude 12. You know, Right off the bat, and you start researching, you find out the commentators don't agree on on what the, these what this love feast or feasts of charity really were. 
You're going to search in vain to try to find unanimity. They're not all united in, in their view of it. There's about three basic views. Uh, one man wrote, some believe the expression originally was just another designation of the Lord's Supper. Some think the word referred to the meals that Christians ate together in their homes in Acts 2.46 when they ate from house to house. So some commentators have come to that conclusion. Others feel it refers to the type of feast that Christ recommended in Luke 14, verses 12 and 13, when He said, invite the poor rather than your wealthy friends. So so I only bring this up to note that today when brethren just emphatically say, well, that that was a fellowship meal, then they're making an assumption that they're not going to be able to sustain to sustain from the context of the New Testament. First of all, because even the commentators don't agree on it. Men don't. It's not unanimity. I, that doesn't make it right or wrong. I'm just illustra- I'm just observing that we have some brethren who are just going to emphatically say, "Well, that was a that was a a meal around a table, and they were just had a, had a big spread." They're assuming something that they have not yet proved. And by the way, the early writers in the church didn't agree either. They're, they're, they, didn't, they didn't make that unequivocal statement either. Ignatius, he, read, he, he, he lived in the first and second centuries. Uh, he wrote uh, letters to the uh, Smyrnans. Smyrnians. Um, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian. These are all 1st and 2nd century A.D. writers. And they talk about this from time to time. And it seems like the more prevailing view that they had was that these were events where the needy were being benefited. The needy were being taken care of and food was being provided as the Christians ate together meeting those benevolent needs. But but there certainly was not unanimity in saying, well, the love feast that was that was the Lord's that was a, a fellowship meal around the Lord's supper. Now that that view didn't develop until very very much later. And um, there's those, as we read a minute ago, who think the feasts have to do with Luke 14. Let's go over there a minute and look at that verse, Luke the 14th chapter. Remember Jesus. He told a parable to those who were invited when He noted how they chose the best places. And He said to them, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place unless somebody more honorable than you comes and the the one who invited you says, please, move down here and let this person take your spot. What was He saying talking about there? Verse 11, He's talking about humility. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he that humbles himself will be exalted. And then he says, to, uh, then he also said to him who invited him, now Jesus turns his attention to the man who had invited him. And he says, when you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the maimed, the lame and the blind. And you'll be blessed because they can't repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So, so in his context, then moving from the point of humility, he he applies again the idea of of 
your charity, your good work, your, your giving to others simply to get back, that's not the way to approach things. But rather, give to those who can't give back. Uh, have a feast for those who, 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 who need that and can't repay you. And God will see that and God will bless you in the resurrection. Now, if that's what Jude has reference to, of course, that's individual action there, isn't it? There's no organized church at all in that passage. None. Nor is there one in Jude 12. So, so, um, so there's three possibilities, and we'll put all that on the chart in a minute. Uh, but you see, the context of Jude, remember, uh, is, is, is such that we don't need to force table fellowship into that context. Our concern, as it was in Jude's concern, was the, uh, we want to be consistent with the faith. Verse 3, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We want to, we want to be in harmony with Revelation. Uh, it's interesting that there's no common agreement among commentators and the early writers, but, but what is the, what's the Word of God say about this matter? You know, it talks about the tradition of the apostles, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, that's our concern. Not, you know, we're, we're, we're going to read some things in a minute where people talk about our the way we eat the Lord's Supper, and, and they view it as a, more of a Church of Christ tradition than anything else, and a, a bad one at that. But, but our concern is, are we conforming ourselves to the pattern of sound words that, that were heard from the apostles? 2 Timothy 1.13 Are we following the apostolic tradition, the truth that they taught everywhere in every church? 1 Corinthians 4-17 to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, with His approval, with His authority. Colossians one or Colossians three and verse seventeen. That's our concern as we study this. And so, with that in mind, with understanding that there are several legitimate understandings in that verse, none of which uh, requires us pushing into that verse something that simply is not there contextually, immediate context or the broader New Testament context. What are some possibilities? Well, some view this love feast of Jude 12 as being the continual life of Christians as they live in the truth. In 1 Corinthians 5 and 8, for those who, who come to that conclusion about the verse, they might refer to this passage. It says, Let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Uh, so we're to be pure... And our life is to be pure. And so the suggestion by some is, well, he's, he's really just talking about the continued faithful life, pure life, uh, of, of Christians. Uh, I'm personally not enthralled by that, that conclusion, but that's, that's, that doesn't do injustice to any of the, the particular passages. Um, house-to-house eating, certainly an illustration of, of charity, of love of goodwill in action toward each other. They were eating their food from house to house with gladness and singleness of heart. Acts 2 and verse 46. That was individual action. Very often it was benevolent. A benevolent response as well as a hospitality response to, the, to their brethren. Um, again, that clearly, Acts 2.46, was not collective action of a local church. That was individual action. 
from house to house. Okay, so and some see that well, they, these these that he the Jews warning against are these false teachers who are going from house to house and eating with you, but really they are hidden reefs. They are deceptive and destructive and dangerous, and you need to recognize them for that and avoid them. Uh, very legitimate. Okay, I, I I don't see any misuse, anything that's that 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 if you see that view and that understanding, I don't see how that violates any scripture. Of course, there's the view of the Lord's Supper. That that really he's that he's simply saying um, and referring to the Lord's Supper. Albert Barnes takes this view. If you want to read more about that particular view, and and it seems reasonable. Um, that that uh, we've been commanded to eat the Lord's Supper, right? We there's, you know, the the one feast we've all been commanded to eat is is the Lord's Supper. Uh, you know, Acts twenty six, Jesus Jesus uh, instituted the supper, so we're under commandment and under instruction. First Corinthians eleven, how to eat that, the purpose of the eating uh, when we come together. So so uh, that that makes sense. The table of the Lord we've already talked about, and the cup of the Lord. So, so there's clearly a meal that's identified with the Lord and in which we have communion with Him in the eating of it. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, that's, that'll come up again in just a little bit, I'll, I, but I, I'll remind you right now that the communion that's talked about in association, in association with the Lord's Supper, both in 1 Corinthians 10 and in 1 Corinthians 11, is communion of the worshiper with the Lord. He's not talking about my communion with you. It's your communion, my communion with the Lord. You're communing with the body. He says the cup of blessing, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The communion of the body of Christ, the bread. So, so it's about fellowship between the worshiper, participation of the worshiper with the Lord in memory of the Lord's death. Okay. So as we consider Jude's context with that view that the love feasts of the Lord's Supper, uh, it, it, we remember that Jude said there's some people that have crept in unnoticed. In this application, it would be these people are with you. They're they're even worshiping among you, but they're hidden reefs. Their doctrines are turning God's grace into lewdness. They're teaching error, and you need to be aware of it uh, as they as they serve themselves rather than serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, any one of those three have have some valid considerations, and none of them make you have to force something into the definition of love feast or make an assumption that, it well, they're just eating a meal together. Uh, that, that may be the case in Acts 2.46, but, but certainly it doesn't say anything about some collective eating. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11 is going to teach us that that's not how we should interpret the love feast of this passage. So, so when we talk... To summarize this portion of the study, the silence of the Scriptures is an aspect to think about. Because you see, the Scriptures don't use the term table fellowship. It talks about the table of the Lord. And that we, have, we, have a, we commune with the body of Christ and the bread and the blood of Christ with the cup. 
and we shouldn't commune with the table of demons. But but this idea, as we're going to see how how it's being defined, table fellowship or fellowship meal, these are terms that that, um, Scripture is silent about. Now, silence does not give consent. Silence restrains us from going beyond what's been revealed. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, 2 John 9, Galatians 1, Revelation 22, all of these verses on the chart teach us, and we're familiar with, that, that if we go beyond the doctrine of Christ, we don't have God. If we, if we go beyond what's been preached and received in the first century, then we forfeit the grace of God. Galatians 1. That we're, if we add to the things written in the book, then God adds the plagues that are written therein in the book of Revelation, chapter 22 and 18. So, so time and time again, the idea of silence of the Scriptures is not our consent to elaborate and expand and assume and 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 posture and postulate, you know, about a about a table meal and a table fellowship and and expand the Lord's supper into something that it was never intended to be. So, so that said, what is this table fellowship, Joe? You've been talking about and. and well, here's a. I want to read this quote. It's somewhat extended, not too long, but but follow this because this was written by a denominationalist uh, from the Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, and uh, so he's he's Calvinist and and uh, and, and dispensationalist premillennially, and um, but he gives a definition and he talks about the table as a place of connection. Now I want you to see this. And what kind of connection is being talked about when, when these folks talk about table fellowship? Table fellowship. He says tables are one of the most important places of human connection. Now, by the way, there's some fundamentals here, some principles that we would agree with. But let's go ahead and, and, and read it all out. Tables are the most important, or one of the most important places of human connection. We're often most fully alive to life when sharing a meal around a table. We shouldn't be surprised then to find that throughout the Bible, God has, has a way of showing up at tables. God shows up at tables. In fact, it's worth noting that at the center of the spiritual lives of God's people in both the Old and New Testaments, we find a table. The table of Passover and the table of communion. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright captured some of this sentiment when he wrote, when Jesus Himself wanted to explain to His disciples what His forthcoming death was all about, He didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. I'm convinced that one of the most important spiritual disciplines for us to recover in the kind of world in which we live is the discipline of table fellowship. And now He's talking about a discipline of table fellowship. We agree that you know it's good to eat together. We you know, a lot can be accomplished eating together. Uh, and but now he's saying there's a spiritual discipline of table fellowship, and and that really we need to recover that. It's something that's been lost that needs to be recovered spiritually. He says in a fast-paced, tech-saturated, attention-deficit disordered culture in which we find ourselves, Christians need to recover the art of a slow meal around a table with people we care about. We don't disagree with that principle at all. We don't disagree with that. That's really not the issue. The issue is going to be, has God designed the Lord's Supper 
to accomplish that in that way. What's the Lord's Supper about? Not, not that we disagree that, that we, we, we get a good, we, we can get closer as we eat together, but you see what kind of connection he's talking about? He's talking about the connection between people. And my question is, when we eat the Lord's Supper, does the Scripture say that its purpose is to get us closer together or to get us closer to God? Where's the communion? Yeah, we know when we sing, we teach and admonish one another. We know singing accomplishes that. So if He says that about the Lord's Supper, we ought to be able to find that about the Lord's Supper. But what we find in the Lord's Supper is we're all accepting of each other when we come together so that each one of us can eat and commune with the Lord. Now, I've paused that quotation. Let's go on a little bit. Table fellowship doesn't often make the list of classical spiritual disciplines. But in the midst of a world that increasingly seems to have lost its way with regard to matters of both food and soul, Christian spirituality has something important to say about the way that sharing tables nourishes us physically and spiritually. We need a recovery of the spiritual significance of what we eat, where we eat, and with whom we eat. In Matthew's account of the Last Supper, he writes, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave to His disciples, saying, take, eat, this is My body. Matthew 26, 26. So, this man connects the institution of the Supper with his spiritual discipline of table fellowship, of recovering the spiritual significance of communing together, you and me. We've lost that. We need to get it back. Now, again, that's commended in Acts 2 and verse 46, going from house to house. That's commendable there. They, they, they went from house to house. Let's read that verse. Let's not just refer to it. Because it's an important part. Uh, when we get together from house to house, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So they ate together from house to house. Now, eating together from house to house doesn't mean that we can come together in one place and have that as a part of the Lord's Supper. That's an assumption. That's a forced definition and application that's not there. Let's keep it where it is. House to house then we share together in a good way that is a strengthening element for us. And that's important. You see, in that context, it was benevolent, it was joyful, it was togetherness. Absolutely, 100% important. So please don't... Yeah, I know you're not going to go away and say, well, Joe doesn't think we ought to get together and eat. <laughs> you say that, you've misunderstood. I haven't been clear enough yet. I want to be clearer. <laughs> Because that's not the point I'm making here. We ought to do that. We need to do that. But is that a part of the Lord's Supper? Because some are saying it is. And that's the point we need to look at. You see, that eating was not the Lord's Supper. In Acts 2.42, you have the Lord's Supper. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So they're united in worship there as they are breaking bread. That is, that's, that's a, a figurative way of containing, a speaking of the whole process of the Lord's Supper. 
Breaking bread, Acts 20 verse 7 uses it as well. In contrast to breaking bread from house to house. Verse 46. So, eat together, great. Importance. House to house, absolutely. We still haven't gotten to the issue of what about the Lord, what about the Lord's Supper? You see, and even though he, that, that particular fellow, tried to connect uh, the uh, Passover meal and then the, the Lord's meal, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper as he called it. Um, of course, it wasn't the Last Supper Jesus ate with his disciples, was it? After he was resurrected, he ate fish with them in John 20, 21st chapter, wasn't it? So, it wasn't even the Last Supper before he was put on the cross, right? But, you know, we pick up, we'll pick up terms along the way that we really maybe haven't always thought through. But still, not the Lord's Supper. So, now, there are variations on this theme. And I want to take a little time here. If you'll indulge me a little bit, I think I need to warn you about this book. In fact, I know I need to warn you about this book. Radical Restoration by F. Lagarde Smith. F. Lagarde Smith went to Florida College back in the early 70s. was a member of what we would call a conservative church of Christ. Uh, he has written this book, and, and, and in it, among other things, he, he lays out his, his uh, framework of saying that we need, to, we need to make some radical changes to radically restore the New Testament church. And it's disturbing to see a lot of brethren in conservative churches of Christ drinking from the well of Ethelgard Smith. He is a false teacher. Uh, akin to such men as Leroy Garrett and Carl Ketcherside and the Unity and Diversity Movement of the 1970s. But he had somewhat to say. He's got a whole chapter about the Lord's Supper. Uh, and a section of that begins by with this quote, the Lord's Supper, he talks about a memorial within a meal. He says the Lord's Supper is really a memorial within a meal. Right. Is that what you've been running into, Lauren? Right. I thought so. And here's, here's what he said, quote, perhaps the most universally overlooked feature of the Lord's Supper as practiced in the primitive church is that from all appearances, it was observed in conjunction with a fellowship meal. That is a normal, ordinary meal with the usual variety of food. However, while unlike ordinary meals, this combined table fellowship and memorial are shared among the disciples for the special purpose of strengthening not just their physical bodies, but their common bond in the spiritual body of Christ. There's that linkage that denominationalists made about the connection, a place of connect. The table's a place of connection. We've got to connect with each other. Now, if Lagarde Smith picks that up and he runs with it, he says, voila, the Lord's Supper is about connecting our common bond. This combining the Lord's Supper with table fellowship. Hence, Jude's reference to their love feast in verse 12. So he clearly identifies the love feast as this broader fellowship meal in which he believes the Lord's Supper was a part. Now, 
When he goes on in his book to talk about 1 Corinthians 11.22, let's go there and read that first. Well, I'll go ahead and put that up. But let's read 11, 1 Corinthians 11.22. It says, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Now that seems rather definitive, doesn't it? That you have houses to eat and drink in. And he's already talked about people bringing his own supper ahead of others, verse 21. And so that makes it impossible for you to eat the Lord's Supper, verse 20. That text talks about the Lord's Supper and a man's own supper. And he says, eat your own supper at home and don't despise the church. Eat the Lord's Supper when you come together. But right now, it's, you're not, you can't eat the Lord's Supper. It's not possible for you to eat the supper. Because, you see, they were also divided among themselves. We'll get to that point here in a minute. So, so when he talks about that verse, though, look what he says. Quote, Far from prohibiting a fellowship meal in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. What? Far from saying, don't have a meal connected with the Lord's Supper, it is clear that Paul is saying in current vernacular, if the reason you're participating in the fellowship meal is to feed your stomach, then you'd better stay home and pig out. Now, he says that's clear. Clear as mud. That pig's been wallowing in the mud. It's not there. But he goes on. The Lord's Supper gave meaning to their table fellowship. And their table fellowship gave meaning to the Lord's Supper. Each was a picture of the other. Well, that's a nice little package tied up in a bow. But what does it mean? He said the Lord's Supper gives meaning to them eating a meal together. And eating the meal together really gives substance to the Lord's Supper. He ridicules our practice of eating the Lord's Supper. Amen. He ridicules... He gave a speech at... York College out in Nebraska, in which he said, in the first century church, Paul is rebuking them for the way they have the Lord's Supper. He says, some of you are not waiting for the others to get there. You're having a regular common meal. If that's all you're going to do, you've got houses just to eat in. Matter of fact, he said, some of you are getting drunk on the communion wine. Have you, have you ever tried to get drunk on one little cup? Now, this is F. Lagarde Smith saying this. You ever tried to get drunk on one little cup? I have. I tried ten of them. You can't do it. And there's laughter, of course. It's Welch's grape juice. And they all laugh. You're never going to get drunk on ten cups of Welch's grape juice. I mean, there's 48 in a tray. Try all 48. He's just ridiculing the concept. He's turning it into a punchline to discredit the solemnity and the purpose of the supper. He says it seems to be in the, in the New Testament times a part of a fellowship meal, an agape love feast that was being abused. Something quite different than our little cups and wafers. We just have little cups and wafers. And his book continues that same ridicule. Now, this is what some brethren have lapped up and incorporated into the concept of the Lord's Supper and the practice that they call the Lord's Supper. In fact, look what he says there. The ritual 
we now euphemistically call communion. No, I don't call it euphemistically communion. I call it because the Bible says communion. 1 Corinthians 10.16 It's not a euphemism. You see, he wants to make it, he says, not wholly unlike the Catholic sacramental Eucharist. He says, we just turn it into a ritual. It's a miniature supper. It's a miniature meal with tokens. That's his ridicule. That's his concept. And those of the same nature. Those of the same attitude. It doesn't hold a candle. That just doesn't hold a candle to the dynamic koinonia communion of the first century disciples in their sharing together the Lord's Supper within the context of a fellowship meal. A memorial within a meal. He says now, watch it, having emasculated the vibrant fellowship meal of the early disciples and reduced it to little more than an emblematic ritual, we have already made a false start in our worship focus. He says, we emasculate the Lord's Supper. We take away its vibrancy, its strength, its power. It's just an emblematic ritual. Now what we need is a meal of fellowship that, that is dynamic, that is... Uh, you know, we, we are we are loving on each other. We are we are sharing with each other. We need to be eating our food, and that's what some of these folks in the house church movement do. They meet on the Lord's day and around the table, and they're just talking about the day's events, eating their meal, and then one of them will start start quoting a passage from the scripture, and and he'll pass the bread, and they'll eat the Lord, they'll eat the bread, and then they'll eat some more, and then then one of them will. We'll, we'll start the cup, and they'll remember. They'll, they'll drink the cup, and they'll they'll say we've eaten the Lord's supper. That's the con- That's what they're doing. Back in Tennessee or Kentucky, I should say, several places back there. In that, in, 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 with that idea. Well, now the last few minutes here together, let's go over First Corinthians eleven to answer these false teachers. That that concept. Is answered. Paul said, beginning in, in well, verse twenty. Therefore, when you come together in one place, yeah. So he's got this. He's got the Christians coming together as a church. Verse eighteen. Okay. In fact, there were there are a couple of problems. A couple of problems here that he identifies. The first problem he identifies is division. Verse 18, first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Now, evidently, according to verse 21, as he goes on to talk a little bit more, there's a class division going on. The poor and the rich. They're coming together. Those that have means, they're bringing their meals, they're eating, they're sharing among themselves. The poor are going without. And and, and that's corrupting why they come together. He says it's not when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. You corrupted it. You defiled it. You perverted it. There's the two basic problems. Division among them and a corruption of the supper that grew out of that division and their treatment of each other. The Holy Spirit's solution was first of all, you've got to separate the suppers and then You need to understand what the Lord's Supper is about and examine yourself and make sure you're eating it for the right reasons lest you bring condemnation upon yourself. And that's where he goes on with the rest of the chapter. Verse 22. We read a minute ago. You have houses to eat and drink in. Verse 34. When he sums it up, when you 
He said in 33, My brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Now, what do they come together to eat? It can't be the meal for hunger because He said if anyone's hungry, eat at home. Verse 34. You have houses to eat and drink in. When you come together to eat, it's not your own supper you do. It's the Lord's Supper. But you see, the table meal, the table fellowship concept is you're filling the flesh and the spirit. The physical and the spiritual. They link it, but, but the Holy Spirit separates it. Separates it. And you can't just read into it what's not there. You can't just assume the love feast is a, is a fellowship meal. It doesn't say that. It's not defined that way. It's the, it's the denominationalists who have defined it that way. Amen. Not the Scriptures. And the brethren are, are, are accepting that and running with it. Now, you see in the New Testament, the pattern was, was, was first of all, you, well, the aid from house to house was, a, was, was not any, any association with, with coming together at all. Individual meals, not where the Holy Spirit put it in 1 Corinthians 11, filled the hunger, Help your brethren. Be with your brethren. Strengthen your brethren. Gladness. Simplicity of heart. Commonality. Unity. All of that seen in a house-to-house eating. And we're united when we come together because you see, we receive one another to break the bread. That is to eat the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, lest I overlook it, let's go back here just a second. I want to comment on down there in about verse 33. When it said, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That is, receive one another, accept one another. They had not been doing that. This is an argument of unity in verse 33. You receive each other for the eating of the Lord's Supper. And that's an element of unity, of worship. You see, you eat your food from house to house also as an illustrative of Humble unity. You don't have to mix the two. In fact, he says, you start bringing your own food when you're supposed to come together to eat the Lord's Supper, then you've done that without Jesus' approval. Because when what He did after the Passover Supper was took the bread and the cup. He says the cup after supper. He took the bread and then after the supper He took the cup he told them, this bread is going to signify something else now. My body. This cup is going to signify something else now. It's going to signify my blood. It's the blood of the covenant. The, the blood that dedicated the new covenant. You see, when we eat the supper, we're supposed to remember that we're in a, a covenant now that provides remission of sins. His blood dedicated the covenant under which we live. Must be remembering that when we eat and drink the Lord's Supper. The New Testament pattern is local churches, brethren coming together to eat a memorial meal. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's called the table of the Lord, the cup of the Lord. It's communion with Jesus. Our communion, our communion is with Him, and each individual needs to examine himself and herself. Verses 27 and 28. Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Remember? 
They were doing that and they were eating unworthy, in unworthy manners earlier. He rebuked them for it. He told them, you take your own supper at home. Now he says, let a man examine himself and let him eat the bread and drink the cup. Each worshiper is to examine themselves to be sure that he's remembering the death of Jesus and proclaiming that death. Not satisfying himself, satisfying his hunger, uh, and in that way perverting the intent and the purpose of the supper. So it's not a meal that satisfies our hunger of the flesh. It's not the table connection that has some good benefits when we all eat a meal together, but the Lord's Supper, the benefit of eating the Lord's Supper is we commune with our Lord. You see, I might have the most terrible heart that I could possibly have when I'm eating the supper, and if your heart is right and you're eating the supper, you're communing with the Lord. But you're not having fellowship with me, are you? Because I'm not having fellowship with Jesus. Fellowship is with God first. And when we're in fellowship with Him, then we share together. And so you come together for the right purpose. And when we all have our heart on the body and blood of Jesus, when we eat the supper, we're in communion with Him. And we're sharing in this assembly an aspect of worship that we're to be giving God. Well, I hope that study helps some. It's not exhaustive, but hopefully it's helpful to understand we need to be on guard against the false teachers out there. We need to be careful lest we are, be, lest we are deceived by the tradition of men. Warning is given in Colossians 2 and verse 8. And then in verse 22, things that concern that perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. The Lord's Word will explain itself to us. And as it does that about the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, we can honor and have the right kind of fellowship with Him as we come together and worship Him as He wants us to in this way. Appreciate your study with me. If you have questions, if you'd like to study more about it, uh, the notes are available online. They're more extensive. Uh, these quotations, the charts, or if you want to study more about it, be happy to do that as well. If we can answer something, if you think I've misused something, be happy to, uh, to investigate that with you. And, and, and I solicit that from you. If you're not a Christian tonight, you need to become one. Because you say you can't really eat at the table of the Lord. You can't really eat the bread and drink the cup and have fellowship with Him if you're out of fellowship with Him. You're not, if you're not a Christian, you're not in fellowship with the Lord. And so become a Christian. Be saved from your sin. And then as a child of God, as, a, as brothers, as our, uh, in, in Christ, we can remember His death as He wants us to. So we urge you to become a Christian. By faith, repent, confess your faith, and be baptized. Or correct sin in your life. If you're a child of God and there's sin, you need to to publicly correct. You need our prayers. We'll help you in that way as well because we want to simply encourage one another to do God's will and God's way. All together we stand and sing. Please come.